Let me say that the, the discs of my talks will have uh, be purged. The cuss words will be removed. So you could play them in a church group and you won't hear an explosion of... Um, it's not profanity, but it can be obscenity. Profanity is taking God's name in vain. I try not to do that, but I cannot claim the same for obscenity. Um, I want to speak rather quickly here and then allow a good 30 minutes for, for a response to both last time and this time. I concluded on this Sophie Scholl. Uh, let me just say a couple things that you might find interesting. If you're interested in the life of Sophie Scholl, there is a movie called Sophie Scholl, The Last Days. It's made in German. It's got subtitles, but it's quite a good movie. If you're interested in reading about the White Rose itself, there is a book written by Sophie's sister, Inga Scholl, called The Resistance of the White Rose. S-C-H-O-L-L. Um, and just two other points of interest. Um, people want to know, why did the Scholls name their resistance newspaper the White Rose? Why not something like the, the Right Arm of Resistance or um, the Sharp Sword? Uh, or something like that. And Hans Scholl, Sophie's sister, brother, who was highly, and the Scholls were very interested and very influenced by Augustine. I actually have in my library a book of Hans Scholl uh, in German that was his. Um, and, and also by Catholic social teaching. And Scholl called the White Rose because he said this, the evil of communism will not be overcome by a counter-evil of force, but by truth and beauty. That's really good. Uh, we live in a world of such gross misuse of force, and our natural reaction is a counter-use of, of just force. And I think that's fine in times. But the church's last message is not about force, it's about beauty, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of truth. And the other thing is that the U.S. Army, or the United States, yes, Army, the government, United States Army in World War II got a hold of the White Rose, copies of it. And they printed hundreds of thousands of copies, put it into their airplanes, and made tours of Germany and threw them out all over Germany. So after the shows, they lost their life trying to disseminate it. The U.S. Army finished the job for them. Every home had one. It's great indie. Today, uh, this time now, we have talked about Christology as one of the main outreaches of the church. We've talked about witness. We've talked about discipleship and the the importance of considering discipleship in terms of martyrdom. And martyrdom means the composite of my life and my death given to Christ for his purposes. Today, this last time, I want to talk about mission. I want to talk more quickly so we'll have time for responses. I'm going to approach mission from an odd perspective, and that is I'm going to approach, approach it from confession, and you'll understand why in a moment. 
If you turn to the Gospel of Luke, following, and this is the 24th chapter, following the walk to Emmaus, Jesus becomes the teacher of his disciples for the last time. And then we have the ascension. And here are his last words. So we saw that his first words in the, the inaugural sermon in Acts in Luke chapter 4 were a quotation from the scripture and then him, him saying these, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your midst. So Jesus consciously, emphatically aligns himself with the redemptive story of God in the Old Testament as his fulfillment. And now look at what he does in the last words. We all have had this experience. Uh, you send your daughter off to college. I just said goodbye. I was telling Dina to an old friend of mine, an old battle horse from the East German days, pastor in East Germany, great guy, Gerhard Lerner. I said goodbye to him. What are your last words to a person? I won't see him again alive. He's 90 years old. I won't see him again, I don't think. We all know this. Here are Jesus' last words to the disciples. Verse 44 of chapter 24 of Luke. Jesus said to them, These are the words, my words, that I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that it is necessary, oh, there it is again, Jesus has this overarching conviction that his life is, program's not the right word, it's providentially called. It's necessary that all of the things that are written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me would be fulfilled. There it is again. We as Christians have one story to tell, and it's the story of Scripture. We tell this story because this is the saving story, not just of the early church, but of all churches. The one church. <laughs> Incidentally, <coughs> this is the first time in literature that we see the tripartite division of the Old Testament. Torah, writings, psalms, uh, prophets. Curiously enough, the synagogue sermon of Jesus in Luke chapter 4 is the earliest reference to a synagogue service. It comes from a Christian text. Not a Jewish text. Well, Jewish, yes, but Christian. And the first reference to the tripartite Hebrew Bible, Torah, Kethuvim writings, and Nevi'im prophets, comes from a Christian source, Luke. Interesting. Verse 45. Then Jesus opened their mind to understand Scripture. Oh, how marvelous this is. We seek to be interpreters of the word of God so that minds would be open to understand. He said to them, it has been written that the Messiah must suffer, be raised from the dead on the third day, that repentance be proclaimed in his name for the remission of sins to all the nations. Boy, we've heard so much, we hear so much today about diversity. 
Let us remember that statement in John that the resur- Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will do what? I will draw all people to myself. What we have is good news for all people, not just white people, not just American people, not just Republicans, Democrats, whatever. And that we are sent ace, panta, ta, ethne into all the nations. Having begun from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. The last words of Jesus are a mini-confession. They are a creed. They are a catechism. Jesus says, I'm going to just put the cookies on the bottom shelf here. This is what I want you to keep in mind, five points. Number one, the gospel is promised in the Old Testament, the Law and Prophets. Number two, its single most important point is that the Messiah must suffer. Well, those guys who came up with the Apostles' Creed got it right. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He must be resurrected from the dead. That the gospel must be proclaimed to Jews and Gentiles, all nations. And it has to happen through personal testimony, your witnesses. Don't expect an angel to do it. It's not going to happen by magic. God's not going to speak out through a great megaphone from heaven. There will be no uh, program, successful program, 12-step program to save the world. No. You've seen, you've heard, you are witnesses. Now you go and do likewise. And we say, well, how would we do that? In the same way that you make known anything else that's important to you. When you fall in love, do you need to have a 12-step program to let people know? You don't. When you get accepted to grad school, when you get ordained, uh, when you've graduated, or yes, graduated or retired honorably, uh, what do you do? You find ways to communicate that. That's just good news. You don't need to be told how to do that. Let it rip. That's last, Jesus' last words. Your witnesses. You've seen it all. Now it's in your court. If we turn, and I want you to turn now to Acts chapter 26, we find that in the last speech of Paul to, Herod, to uh, yes, Herod Agrippa II, and Herod Agrippa II is really portrayed, and he and his sister Bernice, not his wife, his sister, are portrayed as real protagonists. Herod Agrippa I is certainly not. He kills James in chapter 12. Herod Agrippa II is a real protagonist. He's in Paul's court. He tells Paul, gee, you, you don't need to go to Rome. If you hadn't already appealed, we'd let you go. You're, you're not a guilty man. I'm sure Paul said, I wish I'd have met you earlier. <laughs> in Paul's last speech to Herod, now, Herod Agrippa II is going to be the one who says, Paul, if you don't shut up, you're going to make me become a Christian. Paul says, well, then I sure wish you would become, I'd like you to become just like me, except for these change, chains. Here we are in chapter 26, 29. So Agrippa and Bernice have asked Paul, along with Festus, to say, all right, Paul, uh, put your cards on the table. We want to hear, you're, you're, a, you're a semi-famous guy. We want to hear what you have to say. Um, 
O king, Agrippa, I did not become disobedient to this heavenly vision. Paul, for the third and last time, has retold his conversion experience, which reminds us Luke wants to tell us through that. Paul's conversion experience and his theology is formed from the experience of meeting the resurrected Christ. Remember those disciples say, we don't care what those women said, even if the tomb is empty, we're not believing until we see this guy raised. And Paul has seen him raised. O king, I did not become disobedient to that heavenly vision, the vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus. But, first in Damascus, and then in Jerusalem, and throughout the entire countryside of Judea, and to the nations, I announced repentance and turning to God, epistrephane, There's that word conversion. Christianity doesn't just call me to kind of blend into God. Merge into the gospel. Nope. We've got to turn. Turn is a decisive action. It's not simply a continuation of a process. To turn to God... And to do deeds worthy of a changed and repentant life. On account of these things, Jews seized me. When I was in the temple, they laid violent hands upon me. But I received help from God and have continued receiving that help until the present day in which I stand here confessing and the word here is martyrain, bearing witness to you, to small and great, saying nothing except that everything that the prophets spoke have come to pass with the Messiah. It was necessary for Christ to suffer, then to be raised from the dead than to be proclaimed as a light to the people and to the nations. There's the echo. What are the similarities? Last words of Jesus, last words of Paul. The mission program consists of a creed that can be put into meaningful, understandable language And this then becomes the core of what the mission will be in the future. Now, I'm intentionally here defining mission not in terms of outreach, which is normally how we hear it, especially when we use the word missional, although I wholly affirm that. I want you to hear that. But I, and I'll tell you why in a moment, am Uh, emphasizing mission here in terms of what we bring, not just how and whom we bring it to. From the very inception of the Christian church, there were central, 
undeniable elements of the faith, its vital organs, so to speak, that were articulated, taught, memorized, and transmitted as normative and as essential for faith. Jesus' last words put them out there. The gospel that we proclaim has been predicted, anticipated, foreshadowed in the entire Old Testament. Christ needed to suffer. There's the cross. He was raised. There's the empty tomb resurrection. And this is good news that calls for repentance and works of corresponding change. And then this needs to be taken to all the world. This is, all of these elements are present both in Jesus' last words and in Paul's. This is Luke's last echo. Our message is the extenuation of Jesus' message. Our ministry is the extenuation of his. And in some profound, mysterious way, our body as a body of Christ is the representation of his body as well. This process of articulation and transmission already in Jesus and Paul takes the shape of elemental creeds. There are lots of creeds in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15, that which I received, I, uh, that which I received, I also handed on to you. Then we have Paul talking about the earliest resurrection accounts. Philippians 2, 1 through 5, we all know this. That, that Christ, uh, being in the form of God, uh, became like man, suffered, uh, and now as the resurrected Christ, every knee will bow and confess to the glory of God. Uh, first, or Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Interesting, in the New Testament, the image of God is a, that we know from the Old Testament is applied to Jesus, not to us. Through him, to us, but first to him. He's the new Adam. He's the restoration of the image of God. We're not. We receive that restoration through him, not just by creation. The image of the invisible God. And then we have Jesus seen to be part of the creation, now the sustenance of creation, and the completion of creation. Powerful section. There's many creeds in the New Testament which show that already the early church is formulating the faith in ways that can be taught, can be memorized and transmitted, and can be reproduced in the lives of converts. The earliest Roman symbol comes from no later than 120. And this Roman symbol, you'll know it immediately, is so close to what we call the Apostles' Creed and later the, the Nicene and Chalcedonian Constantinopolitan Creed that you couldn't mistake it. Here it goes. It's really old and it's the church's earliest Zusammenfassung, it's the church's earliest comprehensive assembly of these various articles of faith. I believe. Nice. Christian faith is always a statement of reckon. This is what I believe. I take my stand here. The most important things in life you cannot prove. If you can prove it, it ain't important. If you can measure it, weigh it, smell it, handle it, you can live without it. It's not going to last. 
The most important things are things you cannot prove. When you stand before the altar and say to your wife or your husband, I take you, come hell or high water, uh, for the rest of my life, I, you can't prove that you're going to do that or that she's going to do that. You don't know what's going to happen. You make that commitment. You say that to your children. You bring them into existence. You said that as a pastor, I'm going to become a pastor. I'm going to do this with the best of my ability. I won't be perfect, but I'm going to do it. I believe. Two most important words that a human can say. This is who I am. Here I stand. I believe in God Almighty and in Christ Jesus, His only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, who, under Pontius Pilate, was crucified and buried. On the third day, He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father. From there, He shall come to judge the living and the dead and in the Holy Spirit. I think it means, I believe, also in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Church, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the flesh. Wow, that's interesting. Sarks, not Soma. I would have expected Soma. I don't quite understand that, but that's what they said. And life everlasting, period. That's old. And its essential elements were already transmitted both by Jesus and Paul. The old Roman symbol. We don't know the exact date. Marcellus of Ankara, writing in the third century, is our first witness to it. He claims it's about 125. The old Roman symbol. S-Y-M-B-O-L. It was written in Greek, but quickly and early translated into Latin. It was associated with the church at Rome, although it probably didn't uh, originate there, and it became part of the reason that Rome became the primus inter pares, the first among the most important of the five bishoprics of the early church. I want to make two comments why this, why I think it's important for us to include creedal elements in our worship and in our ministry. I'm, I know I'm sliding uphill here because in our, our more uh, free uh, evangelical tradition, this is, may seem to be overly liturgical. I'm still going to make an attempt. The first is, we live, you all know this better than I, you could preach this element of my sermon far better than I can, we live in a profoundly eclectic age. Everybody wants things customized to their own way. My wife and I, bought a car last year, and so we go into the lot. I just want a car. I don't really care. I mean, I want a good car. The guy, so I want a Honda. He comes up with so many options that I can choose or delimit. I don't know what I'm doing. And I finally said, would I be right in saying that there's no two cars on the road that are the same? Because you've just given me 25 options for this one model. He says, oh, Absolutely. We live in a society in which we want and think that we can customize everything. Students just don't want a major in this or that. They want a customized major. They don't want to just go through the normal circumstances. They want to have a service learning program. And we, colleges, look more like retirement homes. 
in every way. Students like uh, a climbing wall, so you got a climbing wall. Lawyers told us for 20 years we couldn't have a climbing wall, way too dangerous. The student says, well, then I'm not coming to Whitworth. You know what? Whitworth found a way to get a climbing wall. <laughs> it's okay if we eliminate that sentence from the, the, uh, the CD. From the scroll. Yeah, from the 8-track wall on sack, <laughs> reel to reel. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know this, and of course, people expect your worship services to be the same. We would like to have lattes out in the foyer before church. My church, you couldn't bring food and coffee into the sanctuary. Well, people decided they wouldn't come. They brought coffee in. We like music this way, not that way. We like the community. We don't like the uh, altar up, so we take it away. The candles, on and on. We. It's, it's like we have a customer survey form. What is worship about? Is it making you happy or is it helping you praise and glorify God? We live in this eclectic age and the problem is we think that most, if not everything, should be wet clay in our hands that we can malleable, that we can mold for our liking. And people begin to think the gospel the same way. Uh, Carol said, people say, I don't want to hear about that God of the Old Testament. I've had students tell me that. They drop my Old Testament class. I'm going to wait and take New Testament because I don't like the God of the Old Testament. And I say, well, honey, the God of the New Testament is the same God as the Old Testament. Jesus calls him Father. Jesus didn't seem to have that problem. Here's why we need the creed. We belong to the gospel. The gospel does not belong to us. I've said this before, and I will continue saying this because this is the water that we are kayaking in today, my friends. Our parishioners and my students want me to explain the gospel in such a way that it makes them happy and they can understand and affirm it. That's not my job. The book of Romans has this beautiful phrase in chapter 6. It's a sleeper. I've read this before at this class. I mean, this place, I know. Six seventeen. Powerful sixth chapter of Romans. Paul's talking about baptism, walking in the newness of the Spirit. In six seventeen Romans, thanks be to God. You were slaves of sin that you obeyed from your heart, but now you were handed over to the tupon dirache to the pattern of the teaching that you are now to obey from your heart. Paul says, we are handed over to the model of the faith to shape us. 
The gospel is not something that I manufacture and shape for my abilities. It is the creedal truths, the central pillars, those immovable truths of God that shape me. I did not become a Christian and I did not enter ministry and I'm not teaching scripture in order to try to make God in my own image or to shape the gospel according to my image. I am doing all of these things because I believe this is the saving truth of the world and I want it to shape my life. I want to conform to it. A creed is essential to that. If there's going to be a model that will shape me, a stamp, then you've got to have something prior and firm. There is the creed. Listen to how Paul starts Galatians. He's had gone to Galatia as a missionary pastor, and some people came in after him and began to preach another gospel and undo what he had built, and Paul is just hotter than a mad hornet. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, I am astounded that so quickly you have been removed from the one who called you in the grace of Christ to another gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but certain people are troubling you. They wish to pervert the gospel of Christ, the good news of Christ. But if we or an angel from heaven... Isn't that remarkable? If there were a divine apparition that came teaching us something apart from the gospel, Paul says, I wouldn't believe it. Now, we live in a day of profound, um, the authority of experience. Paul says, I actually have an authority more than an experience, and that's the gospel of Christ. But if we or an angel from heaven preach to you any other gospel, then let him be anathema, cursed. It's harsh. Paul's not being nice there. As we said before, I'm going to say again, if someone proclaims a gospel apart from the one that you received, there's the tradition, there's the creed, let him be anathema. There's no doubt in what Paul's saying. That standard, that creed, needs to be transmitted. My second point is this. It seems to me that our thinking about the mission of the church, um, um, I want to suggest um, that, we, that we think a second time about this. And I'm going to use an illustration here. I want you to think in terms of an extension cord. So let's say I've got a cord that's 20 feet long. I plug it into the outlet here. And I bring it out here. And I've got a free in for appliances. That's the input side. This is the output side. This is the source side. This is the appliance side. But it stops here. Now I grew up... Um, I was born in 1945, I grew up in Colorado Springs, Young Life was my, uh, and I owe so much to Young Life, Young Life has shaped so much of my thinking about mission. 
And Young Life came along and said, you know, the church is not reaching kids. We need to do something about that. Young Life comes along and says, you know, the, the court you've got is 20 feet long, but it isn't reaching John or any of you. So what do we need to do? We need to get an extension cord, a 100-foot extension cord, so it can reach you kids. The parachurch organizations that took place in America, that are worthy of a whole chapter in the history of mission, are basically extension cords. And then Wycliffe says, well, you know, it's not, we just we need another 100 uh, feet of uh, cord to reach American youth. It's the wrong adapter here. We've got the Tunabo people. We've got uh, the Swahili people. We've got all of these people that don't know the language. So we need to have an adapter so that they can understand it. The adapters, let's get the language into the mother tongues of these people. We all agree with that. And then we realize, look, we've got uh, segregated churches. We need to get people of all different shades of skin in the churches. And so we actually need to put a, a uh, divider here so we can get to some black people and Chicano people and white people and Indian people and all this stuff. We spent all of our time, I think, in my experience, saying that the problem with this whole mission thing is on the appliance end. How to reach college kids. How to reach the boomer generation. How to reach all of us in old people's homes. How to reach the gay community. How to reach this, how to reach that, how to reach this. It's all about the appliance end when we haven't given any thought to this end. And that's because we've always assumed that there was a constant source of even 120 volt current coming out. The problem was shunting it to all of these various constituencies that weren't getting it. Now that was, I think, probably valuable and valid thinking in 1950, when most churches, most seminaries, most of the outsourcing were preaching the gospel. I grew up in the Episcopal Church. Now I can tell you that the that the priest in my church, I know because I was an acolyte. I wanted to become an Episcopal priest. I was going to become one until I wanted to go to Princeton Seminary. The guy says, we won't accept your seminary. I says, you won't accept Princeton Seminary? No, you'll have to go there and then you'll take another three years and go to Neshota House. I says, fine, I'd rather shift than fight. I'm out. But you know, the Episcopal Church has the Book of Order. That's orthodoxy. It's just great theology. And the Presbyterian had the same, and the Catholic had the same, and the Methodist had the same back in 1950. What's happened in the last, in my generation, yours, we have seen not only a change at the appliance receptor end, but what? We've seen an enormous change here at the output. I'm not quite sure that the plug is all the way in. It's not even getting the source in a lot of churches or seminaries, or Christian colleges. Or if it is, it's intermittent. Or perhaps it's jumping and varying from, varying from 220 to 110, or even going down to, to 15 volts. And that's not going to run anything. There's so little juice coming through the wire that we can't power anything. This is where creeds come in. 
This is where theology comes in. This is where orthodoxy comes in. It's not just how to reach the unreached. It's equally important with what are we reaching the unreached. Is it a self-help gospel? Is it a gospel of ease and comfort? Is it this or that gospel? Is it another gospel? From the very earliest days, Paul is having to be concerned about not how these Galatians are being reached, but with what they are being reached. So my friends, mission is doubly complex today. It's not just how to get more extension cords and adapters and all these things that the parachurch movement has been so good at, so helpful, and continues to be normative for. We all are beneficiaries of that. Think of Hollywood Press. This, look at this camp. Look at the camp ministries that have happened in the post-war era. They've had an untold influence on Christianity in this country and in the world. But the understanding of the gospel has changed precipitously in our time, and we must be guardians of its orthodoxy. And that means the socket, not just the appliance end. Once again, it's not an either-or. It's now harder. It's like I said, it's a two-front war. I'm going to stop there. That's all I have to say. You all know this better than I. I, I submit this last point as... Um, it's a, it's a trial balloon. It's my perspective. And I'm certainly willing for you to either sh sharpen it or challenge it or affirm it. But it's how I see it. The floor is open for comments about the last two talks. Questions? Thank no. I just would like to hear your comment when uh, the, church is, the church has battling against the love of truth and, um, and a respect for uh, whatever orthodoxy we've inherited from the past and tradition uh, is in the balance against vox populi. Uh, in other words, the present majority vote of the people um, uh, can... Uh, can reauthorize scripture, can add new confessions, can remove confessions. And um, uh, I don't know if historically, uh, I mean, we've seen in, in the way I think we're seeing now in some ways uh, um, Vox Populi trumping sola scriptura. Well, the questions that come from this group are such good questions. This is a good question, um, and its answer is not going to be quickly given or known. How do we know God's will for the church? And 
the church has always asked this. For example, during the early church when the canon is coming into existence, both Origen and Eusebius, who are living through this, are asking the question, how do we know which books are of divine inspiration, that is to say, should be in the canon, which should not. We know um, that, for example, the Hebrew gospel was on the border. The book of Revelation was on the knife edge. Hebrews was on the knife edge. So was the epistle of Barnabas. Codex Sinaiticus has epistle of Barnabas at the end of it. Uh, so was the Didache. There were some eight to ten Books that, I mean, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were always in. Acts was always in. Romans, 10 Pauline letters. 1 John, 1 Peter, they were always in. But there's about six or eight books that weren't. And there were another six or eight. They were good contenders. Some came in, some came out. Origen said, how are we going to decide this? Are we going to make a committee? Now, Bart Ehrman <laughs> and Dan Brown, and all said, yeah, it was a committee of a bunch of old men, nasty guys, who wanted to maintain power. It didn't work that way. Origen comes up with this brilliant, how do we know what the will of God is? And Origen says, you know what the will of God is in what the average, ordinary Christian church is preaching, teaching, and obeying. It's the body of Christ. It's not a committee. And so they said, we're just going to have to see what books are being read throughout Christendom, what books are being preached from, what books are going being catechized from, what books are being used, and what books are not, and there's your canon. Do you like that? Yeah. I like it. It's democratic. It's the first democratic idea. That is to say, no committee can decide this. They don't say, well, let's get together with, let's get Augustine and Jerome and Athanasius and our biggest guns and we'll go with them. No, they don't say that. The best arbiter of orthodoxy are the people in the pews. They respond to the sheep. They know a difference between a hireling and a sheep. You listen to them. This is why we have 12 ordinary people in a uh, trial, jury. Now, the problem with that sounds good as this. It takes a long time. It takes centuries. And, Noel, I think we're in one of those periods. We're in periods where there are people who believe deeply things about human sexuality. They are Christian people. And, boy, this is, an, this is a line, this is a hill on which they're going to die. And we're going to die. And it's not just true about this, it's true about race, it's true about ideology. I first came to this during the, I grew up, came to seminary, like some of you, young, older ones, during the race, uh, Vietnam era. Man, that was a hill on which I was willing to die. These are not going to be easily decided. And I'm, I believe that there is a truth, and I believe that there is an error. I don't believe that we are always going to be able to see it, and I think that in the, in the interim, we need to be as gracious as we can. Um, I've taken a stand on this issue um, because this is my personal opinion. I do not take that stand in order to shame anybody or to say you should be doing the same thing. I ask one, uh, one thing and I promise one thing. Trust that I have done this through prayer 
and sincerity, and I promise to give you the same grace. Now, we don't like to hear that, do we? we, we these are big problems. They're dividing our churches. They're dividing our seminaries. Last time I was here, three or four years ago, we were all PCUSA. That's no longer the case. The dam is broken. These are tough times. When we have a brand new member here, Carol says, you guys look beaten up. She's right. It's not, it's not a scandal to you. You're like a ship that's been through a big storm. You got tattered sails. Nothing to be ashamed about that. People are going to look back on your generation and say, man, those guys and gals, they had a rough, rough road to hell. We owe a lot to them. They held the fort. It's not much fun. We, we have to do these two things. Christians are always asked to do these two things. Here I stand. This is what I believe to be true to the best of my understanding of Scripture and the will, and yet I'm going to be gracious to those who genuinely seem to see it differently. May God give us grace to do both. I can, yeah. I'll repeat it if I can't. As um, I'm wondering, one of the things that I that I, I when we hold to a creed, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, where do we teach the way and the truth and the life of Jesus? Do sometimes because in it it says um, that when did we see you homeless and when did we see you you know naked? When did we see you? And then, you know, the goats, he put them, he took them out, and he sent them off into the, the, the area of gnashing of teeth. It, it concerns me that we would jump to, that we would jump over that. And for many, and as a parachurch organization, we see kids coming up, and I've been there 20 plus years, we've seen kids coming up that don't know they know the stories, and some of them include vegetables now, and are been reduced to vegetables, and, um, but they don't know Jesus. Right. Okay, Tony, thank you so much for that. That is great. I'll speak briefly to it. The purpose of a creed is not to allow or encourage the church or you at Calvin Crest or anywhere else, to jump over the gospel. Its purpose is much simpler. It keeps us from omitting essentials of the gospel. So, the creed says, um, he was born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate. What does that mean? That means that we need to find ways in our preaching, teaching, and catechism to get the life of Christ in there in all its fullness. A creed is like the instructions you get 30 seconds before you jump out of an airplane to parachute. They don't tell you everything that you need to know. They remind you of those important things that you surely don't want to forget. But when you get reminded of that, you'll remember everything. 
Now, here's an important thing. Now, I bet you'll agree with me. The creeds remind us of the importance of eschatology. The blessed hope. This world that we live in is boot camp. It's a preparation for eternity. The 60, 80 years, whatever I am allotted in this world is training for life eternal in a whole new realm of existence. This is wholly left out of our church today. I don't know when the last time was I heard a church on heaven. Heaven has seemed to be escapist. Seemed to be a way of avoiding the social calls of our era. We ask our kids, our students at Whitworth University who are theology majors to write a credo. Out of 25 students, 22 of them will have no eschatology whatsoever. The gospel is what God is doing for us right now and nothing in the, in the future. Eschatology is critically important. C.S. Lewis is actually right. On this, is on everything else. The people who have had the greatest influence on this world, Christians, have been what? Those who have had the strongest view of the world to come. And the creed keeps us from getting a lopsided gospel. It keeps us in the whole counsel of God. And you know what? A balanced diet creates a healthy body. An eclectic diet creates a freaky body. That's a creed. But we left out, you talked about martyrdom, but you haven't talked about suffering. You haven't talked about those who, you know, as the hockey players get pushed out to the side, that's where Jesus calls us to be, is to the side. And so in a sense, and I'm, I don't mean to argue with you, but in a sense, that's what we've, and by no means am I saying that the creed is wrong, but I think one of the things that people are asking for today is when they don't know who Jesus is, they don't know what the church is about, mm -hmm. and when the church is talking about martyrdom, they're saying, welcome to my world, finally. Hmm. Talking about martyrdom, because I'm whatever, 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 because I'm fat, let's just go there, I'm marginalized, or because I'm, I'm marginalized. And it was the church that drove me to the edges. But it's not Jesus. Jesus meets us at the edges. And I think that's one of the things that I'm seeing from, I think that's why there's this push back to what is Jesus about. Not because I think it's, it's wrong theology. I think it's the theology included in all of that. Mm -hmm. But it feels like we're moving more towards a standard of, a, a standard without putting in, when did we ever see you naked? No, we're not. A creed is talking points about the gospel. A creed is always and wholly about Jesus Christ. If it's all about Jesus, then let's, let's be all about Jesus. Jesus has a lot of teaching on eschatology. He has a lot of teaching on interfacing with powers and principalities. He has a lot of teaching on the marginal. He is, in fact, the one God and Savior for all people. The creed helps us remember that. Jim, my question is about uh, resistance. 
In uh, early biographies of Bonhoeffer, uh, he was portrayed as being passive aggressive or evasive uh, at points. And the latest biography by Metaxas reveals that Bonhoeffer went nose to nose with Hitler and, and was actually in his face. So the, is that true? And if so, how do we discern when to, when to withdraw and when to go nose to nose with the devil? Right. Um, um, I, I like Eric Metaxas a great deal, and I like his book. But I think on this particular point, it's slightly misleading. Eric Metaxas leads us to believe that, that it was natural for Bonhoeffer, as for all Christians, to be involved in the resistance movement to Hitler. That it was the proper and the obvious thing for a Christian to do. That is totally wrong. Uh, Bonhoeffer was a pacifist. He wanted to go study with Gandhi. He came to the resistance only late, as did almost all the others for this reason. They, as ministers, were employees of the state, like all ministers, like all civil servants, and like all army officers, had made an oath of allegiance to Hitler. And they lived in a day, unlike ours, when you said something, especially if you said it under oath, you didn't break it. Bonhoeffer wrestled hugely, did I emphasize that enough? <laughs> With whether it was right in a system to practice regicide whether regicide could, in fact, take priority over a vow. Regicide means to kill a king. That's the most serious thing you can do. You all know how seriously you've taken your vows to your spouses. Bonhoeffer took his vow to Hitler that seriously. So did the Kreisau circle. Those guys discussed this for three years. They all ended up in the resistance, but believe you me, they did not just gravitate there. Talk about taking a turn, whoa. Bonhoeffer told nobody this. His father didn't know it. He never, ever expected anybody in the confessing church to do it, and he was rejected by the confessing church for that. This was hugely costly to him. Read his book of ethics. You have a maniac driving through the, your, your street at night. He won't get off the road. You've got two options. What are they? You know what he says in ethics. Keep everybody off the street? Or what? Take him out. You think that was an easy decision for Dietrich Bonhoeffer? It was not. Bottom line to your answer, resistance is only one through hard thought, conversation, prayer, and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's tough. Let's not glorify this. Could you comment on, I mean, right after, right after Jesus um, talks about the mission in Luke 24, he says, but don't go out until you have received power from on high. And, and then I was reflecting also as you were talking about um, Suffering, you know, Paul's statement in Philippians 3.10 where he says, I want to know him mm -hmm. and the power of his resurrection right. and to share in his suffering that I may become like him in his death. And so that seems to almost kind of blend a theology of glory with a theology of the cross. Mm -hmm. And I wonder the connection um, 
receiving power from on high, and if you could just fly with that for a little bit. Um, right, I'll try to make a short flight here. <laughs> I believe that nothing that I do or we do can succeed without the power of the Spirit. The Spirit has come upon the church at Pentecost. It's not something I call upon. It's something I receive and act in. I believe that um, as I am preaching the gospel, and insofar as I'm preaching actively, accurately, that the Holy Spirit is doing in that what I could not think or imagine. You all know this as pastors. People come up to you and they say after your sermon, great sermon, I got X out of it. And you say, I didn't preach X. <laughs> but they did get it. Because you weren't the only one preaching. The Holy Spirit's interpreting to their lives. I just believe that, Andy. And I live in that. And this is my one hope in life and death, that the Holy Trinity is working through my ministry and for all of its faults, using it redemptively. Yeah. And so when Paul talks about... Um, praise for the Ephesians, that they would know that same power that raised Christ from the dead, that same resurrection power. And Paul then in Philippians 3.10, that I would know the power of his resurrection. How do you see that unfolding in our lives, this power of the resurrection in our daily ministry? I believe that it does. But I don't believe that it's something that we... Um, consciously um, uh, need to seek. In these reports and echoes, we can clearly see that Luke is showing, look at how the church is in fact echoing the life of Christ. But what Luke does not say is that the church is consciously doing that. Oh, what did Jesus do? Let's recount that and see if we can repeat that. We're not told that. We're told that in this organic, mysterious way, that the Holy Spirit is now activating within the body of Christ similar redemptive acts that took place in the incarnate body of Jesus Christ. And that's this mysterious power of God at work within us, which we think God is in this place. Look at how God has done this. Uh, Jim, I appreciate so much of what you've said this week. It's incredibly powerful and right on for me, at least in my ministry. You mentioned the creed, and it seems like we've stuck pretty exclusively with the Apostles' Creed, but just gauging from your lectures, you must love Barman Declaration. <laughs> but I'm thinking, you know, practically, can you give us a little guidance? Barman is fabulous, but it's not, it's not very liturgical. It's kind of <laughs> hard to splice that into a, a bulletin, you know, on Sunday mornings and go, yeah, I'm, uh, how, what other creeds? I mean, Nicaea is a little more, the Nicene Creed is a little more universal, and it sounds a little bit like a lengthier Apostles' Creed. What do you think? How, do, how might we integrate a, a sampling of creeds so that, because I, I love the fact that, you know, the Apostles' Creed is there, and I've been using it a lot, but at, week after week after week, uh, it gets a little repetitive, just, just the Apostles' Creed. Do you have some yeah. ideas on how we right. might spruce it up a little? Right, uh, I do. And... Here I'm going to go back to, to Tony's point. I don't want the creeds to replace scripture. And this is the danger of our liturgical tradition. 
the, the, the liturgy becomes so beautiful, so holy, that it starts to replace Scripture. The purpose of this creed is like the purpose of the owner's manual in your book. It doesn't drive your car for you. It doesn't tell you everything about it. It just tells you the most important things so that you can enjoy the whole thing. The key, Tony, is Scripture. We have to stay in that whole redemptive story. The creed helps me. The creed is the place when I don't quite understand some of the story, I go back to it and say, oh, that's what it means. It's the interpreter from the entire Christian tradition. Our best minds over the longest period of time have agreed on this. If I had to, if I could uh, redesign the church, <laughs> thank goodness I can't, I would choose four creeds. I would choose the Chalcedonian Creed. That's the beefed up version of the Nicene of the. Uh, of the Nicene Creed. I would uh, choose the Augsburg Confession. I would choose Heidelberg. And I would choose Barman. I'll tell you why. The most ecumenical creed, foundational until all is Chalcedon. That has been the one creed that's united all Christians at all times. Number two, I like Augsburg because out of its 28, I think, uh, articles, fully 18 of them show what the Lutheran tradition had in common with Catholicism. It's really an ecumenical creed. I believe, I believe this so strongly that people in the world do not care today whether we are a Presbyterians or Lutherans or Methodists. I don't believe they care whether we are Catholics or Orthodox or Protestant. Those terms mean nothing to them. We live in a world that's so profoundly confused and secularized they care about one thing. Is there such a thing as Christian? And if so, what is it? That is a gift of God to us. We live in an age where we are forced to be ecumenical. We can no longer allow the, 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 the minor differences that have divided us. That's been a luxury to overcome the great commonalities that we hold. I am a Christian, period, and I want to teach that, and I want to preach that, and I want to take my stand on that. Augsburg does a great job at that, and then it gives another 10 articles that say, what's unique to the Reformation? It's powerful. It's just great. Who's going to complain with Heidelberg? Heidelberg is just great. It's so existential. It's so practical. It's so humble. It doesn't overstate. It doesn't divide. People say, theology divides, uh, mission unites. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Don't fall for that one. Creeds are theological. They are meant to do what? Divide or unite? Of course. Don't believe everything people say to you. And then Barman, Barman doesn't need to be a full creed. Barman says, we live in a time today, remember what I said yesterday or today or sometime, during the Nazi period, the world that we live in was born. It was hatched. Barman has its finger on the pulse of that one. And he says, these are things you need to watch out for in the 21st century, 20th century. Jesus Christ, as he is taught, presented to us in Scripture, is our one word of hope in life and death. That's Karl Barth's first point. Christology, as it's in Scripture. Well, I'd say those four are really cool. Anyway, it's enough. Yes. Uh, Jim, I want to get back to the dirty bastards that you brought up um, <laughs> earlier. What was um, that? 
So with respect to Tertullian and the blood of the martyrs being the seed of the church and all of that, there are these famous martyrs like Polycarp and others, uh, Ridley and Latimer, right. that, that we revere. But we live in a day and an age when, you know, the testimony of the uh, Armenians who were, you know, genocide was committed against them by the Turks, um, the Christians in South Sudan, the Nubian Mountains, uh, Christians all throughout the Middle East, um, where Syria and Lebanon used to be 30 or 40 percent Christian, and you know we don't see those numbers anymore. Um, it, it's not it's it's martyrdom, but it's without the privilege of actually, you know, making a stand or or knowing letting the world know your stand. And I just wonder if you could comment on that. I mean, we don't want to be glib about people's martyrdom, but it's reached such epic numbers that that I don't know whether it's actually seeding the church. I mean, the Soviet Union, since, you know, the, when the communists came in, how many generations of Christians were never evangelized, were never born, were never, you know, it, it's effective. Persecution is effective. And, and uh, we just can't, I just feel like it's, I, I'd just like you to speak to that because it's so frustrating to see all these millions of Christians or would have, could have, should have been Christians. Ooh. I'm not going to speak to it because I can't. I'm just going to think out loud really quickly. I make a slight distinction between two things. Genocide, mass killings of people that we have become not just informed about, but inured to, almost to protect ourselves, on the one hand, and then martyrdom on the other. Genocide means that we are killing innocent people without any reason at all. They're non-combatants. This is absolutely evil. But they're not all dying for their faith. It doesn't mean that their deaths are not important, and it doesn't mean that the church is not should not pray and be compassionate, but they're not in the traditional sense of martyr. Uh, when Krakatoa blew up or when, uh, when uh, the big uh, volcano took place in Mount Vesuvius, lots of people died too, they weren't martyrs. Martyrdom is, is more specific. It is when you are asked to make a confession and you could avoid your death by denying Christ, but by affirming Christ, you will lose it, your life. That's much more conscious and usually more individual. Those special people, I think, are worthy of being models of the church. The victims of genocide are those suffering people with whom we must stand. Um, what advice would you give in this theology of persecution and martyrdom, and I appreciate that distinction you just made, is very important, to the Christian photographer who says, as a matter of conscience, you know, I, I, I'm refusing to photograph this so-called gay marriage ceremony, and, but I'm going to lose my business, my family's going to suffer economic hardship, is it, is it worth it to make my witness as a Christian in that way, or is that a, um, 
kind of a false witness and maybe a, a bad stewardship choice on my on my part when that may not be the hill to die on. What what do you have anything to speak to that person in that situation? Well, we were we were talking about this a little bit. I'm sure you all have thought about this a good deal more than I have. I think that this is no different than hundreds of issues that you and I have to face in a democracy. It's just come by a different name at a different time. And that is, all along, we have had to decide in America those things that we could tolerate without resisting, although we didn't approve them. I'm not in favor of gambling. I think gambling is, is terrible. It's making money without producing a good. It's stealing from people, and usually, usually uninformed people. I think it's an evil. But I learned to live with it. Why? Because I have to. I don't like the fact that we rip Amerindians off by making casinos. I think that's wrong. I don't like abortion. I don't like the industrial use of animals and killing. It's, it drives me crazy. I've become a vegetarian because of that. I think it's a moral evil. But I live in a world in which these things are allowed, and I have to learn to live with them. Doesn't mean I approve them. At what point does my fellow traveling, is it, is it an expression of tolerance and charity? And at what point must I take a stand? If I were a, a florist, personally, I don't think that providing flowers for a same-sex marriage would compromise my faith. As a pastor, if somebody says, uh, I'm not longer a pastor, uh, but if I were a pastor, and somebody said, Jim Edwards, would you marry this same-sex couple? I would say, I can't do that. You see, there's a difference for me there. The one compromises my pastoral calling, the other doesn't. I think we need to be wise here. Let's not get backed into corners. Let's not be pugnacious. Let's ask ourselves, are these responses of ours being, being motivated by grace? Grace that doesn't forget truth. But I like what, um, well, our, our friend here, Carol, she's had this heart for people who are outside the pale, and we bear witness in things like this.